have your Bible, if you'd open it to the book of Luke, we're going to be finishing up chapter 3 and starting in chapter 4 this morning. This is on page 46 in the black book in front of you. That's the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, would encourage you to take that one home with you as our gift to you. This Wednesday, a new president will be inaugurated for our nation. Now, we know in many ways that based on what happened a couple weeks ago, uh, this is really in some ways a formality. The, the Electoral College has already cast its votes, but now with the, the duties of office and being sworn in, it will become official. And in many ways, what we're going to look at this morning is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And nothing has changed about who he is. He was Lord at his birth, and he continued to be at this moment. But now, we are beginning to see the, the, what his ministry and life shapes up to be. Similar to how we think of a new president coming into office, the early days are kind of setting the tone for the ministry, or not the ministry, but for the, the time in office that they will have. And so we can rightly see from Jesus' opening actions in chapter 4, what kind of ministry he is going to have, what will set the pace for his life. And now I I want to tell you on the front end that the approach that I am taking to this text is going to be overarching theology and not as much practical application, personal application for us. So I say this, this isn't typical, but I think Luke has ordered these three events in a certain way to help us see something very important, very significant about who Jesus is And so, while we certainly will find application for ourselves, we're going to be wading into some of the deeper waters of theology and Christology this morning, and so I would encourage you to ask the Lord for help, and we'll do that just now together. Fathers, we come to your word. Help us to understand it for what it is, your word to us. Help us to see what you have said to us in order that we might be shaped and fashioned by it Not first by seeing ourselves and how we are like Christ, but first by seeing how He is different from us. And that's why we come to Him in worship and why we look to Him as our Savior. So do that work among us and help us to focus in on who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In verses 21 through 22 of chapter 3, we see that Jesus' baptism tells us He's the Son of God. Jesus' baptism tells us He's the Son of God. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this isn't the first time that Luke has told us Jesus is the Son of God. We have heard it from angels sent from God and all kinds of people filled with the Holy Spirit up until this point. But there is here a ratcheting up, so to speak, as this truth is being declared here. So following Jesus' baptism, as He was praying... God the Holy Spirit and God the Father visibly and audibly testified that Jesus is the Son of God. 
the three persons of the Trinity were demonstrating in this special moment the unity and seamless cooperation they've known from before time began. At the very outset of Jesus' public ministry, like there had been at the outset of his life on earth, there would be no confusion. On the highest authority that exists, Jesus is God the Son, the Son of God. And in fact, that's actually the focus of these two verses and not the act of Jesus' baptism. But even though it's not the focus, Luke does tell us that Jesus was baptized. What we might miss is the significance of why he was baptized. Last week in chapter 3, verse 3, we saw that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if that's why everyone else was getting baptized, what's Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity doing getting baptized? Jesus was and is holy. We've sung about it multiple times this morning. The testimony from the Father and the Spirit following His baptism vouches for that. And that means He didn't have any sins to repent of or to be forgiven for. And as we'll see in chapter 4, He was tempted in every way like we are, but He never gave in. So if Jesus wasn't baptized as an expression of repentance from sins because he didn't have any, why was Jesus baptized? Well, in short, Jesus was baptized like all the people because of all the people. Jesus was identifying himself with those he came to save. He went under the water like them because he would go under the water of God's wrath for them. And from the very outset of his ministry, Jesus was committing to suffer for the sinners he came to save according to the will of his Father. And Jesus' baptism put him on the path that would culminate in making his people's baptisms actually mean something. He was also setting an example for us to follow in that as he identified with us, In his baptism, we now identify with him in ours. When we go public with our faith in Jesus through baptism, we're doing what he did before us because of what he did for us. Jesus' baptism functions as the inauguration ceremony to his public ministry. The Son of God begins with the power of the Spirit and the approval of the Father. But we're reminded in the next section that Jesus' genealogy tells us He's the Son of Man. So Jesus' baptism tells us He's the Son of God, but Jesus' genealogy tells us He's the Son of Man. And yes, I am going to read all of these names, and no, you should not observe my pronunciation because I'm just like you and I struggle to pronounce names, okay? We're going to pick up in verse 23 and read through the end of the chapter. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Mathat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, 
the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonanan, the son of Reshi, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Edlamadim, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonim, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menon, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxan, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Yes, I did practice, okay? Now Luke tells us that Jesus was around 30 years old when he began his ministry. He then proceeds to tell us where Jesus came from, from an earthly standpoint. And of the over 75 entries recorded here, close to half of them are unknown to us. And they serve not as notable figures in history, but of credible witnesses to history. And partly owing to the difficulties that we have in pronouncing so many of these names, we tend to take genealogies for granted. We can find ourselves skipping over them unless we're looking for possible baby names. But that's a mistake. The genealogies of the Bible remind us that we're reading fact and not fiction, friends. These were real people. Not all of them made significant marks in history, like I just want to break it to you, not all of us will. But they tell us that they truly lived. And that aside, it's right that we would notice the standouts. David, Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, they're all there. And their inclusion foreshadows that Jesus is the eternal king who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah who will defeat his people's enemies. He's the seed of Abraham who secures all the promises God made to the patriarchs. And Luke's going to bring out these connections as we work through his account. But for now, his focus is on another connection. An an older and more fundamental connection. Like each and every one of us, Jesus' first human father was Adam. Jesus identifies with every man, Luke wants us to know, and not just every Jew. The Son of God is also the Son of Man. And that means of all the family trees, of all the people who have ever lived, they eventually funnel back to the same source as Jesus is, with one all-important difference. And this difference was emphasized by the angel Gabriel when he announced the virgin birth of the coming Messiah in Luke 1. Jesus didn't have an earthly biological father. And Joseph was his father legally through adoption, 
and he functioned as his earthly father figure, but Jesus wasn't conceived by man's seed, and Adam wasn't either. Adam and Jesus were both of God uniquely from the rest of humanity, but differently from each other. Adam was coming into existence as God created him from the dust, but Jesus was coming to the earth as God caused Mary to conceive apart from the seed of any man. Adam became the Son of God, while Jesus has eternally existed as the Son of God. And the reason for the difference is that Adam was a created being, while Jesus wasn't. He became flesh like all of us, but in a different way from all of us. Because unlike all of us, he is the God by whom, through whom, and for whom everything was created. In the incarnation, Jesus was adding full humanity to his full divinity. And so in Jesus, a crossroads opens up in the family tree of humanity. In him, a new line is opened that leads to a different inheritance that stems from a different legacy, as we'll see in the next section. That's why Jesus is sometimes called the second or last Adam. There are only these two lines. There is the line of the first Adam, whose trespass led to condemnation for all men, and the line of Jesus, the second Adam, whose righteousness leads to right justification and life for all men. And we see the evidence of Jesus' righteousness in the next section, where we see that Jesus' temptation tells us he's the Savior. Jesus' temptation tells us he's the Savior. So his baptism tells us he's the Son of God. His genealogy tells us he's the Son of Man. And now we see in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 4, his temptation tells us he's the Savior. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, it's not by accident that Luke has arranged these three sections this way. On the heels of connecting Jesus with Adam, we move into this scene that's intended to give us flashbacks to the Garden of Eden. There, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And Satan's attack against Adam, the son of God, came indirectly through the temptation of Eve, Adam's wife. And the serpent said to her, Did God actually say you shall not eat any of the tree of any tree in the garden? He then goes on to contradict God's word by asserting, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve ate and she gave some to Adam who also ate and he was with her the whole time. So this isn't the time to reflect on that, but I don't want to let Adam off the hook as though he was an innocent bystander. And as they say, with the realization that both man and woman have eaten from the forbidden tree, the rest is history. At that moment, Paul explains in Romans 5, sin came into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. As a just consequence for man's rebellion against the holy God who created him, the ground was cursed, and all creation was subjected to the bondage of corruption. Now everywhere we look, we see death and decay. We see bondage. We see brokenness. And those sad and sobering realities tell us something. They remind us every day that something's wrong with this world. Even with all the polarization that's happened right now in our culture, and especially in a year like 2020 and 2021 seems to follow suit, everyone would agree that our world is broken, even if for different reasons, with different solutions. You see, some people would say, it's their fault. And then those people would say, no, it's their fault. And then other people would say, well, if each of us will just look inside ourselves and find the good, we'll wake up to a better tomorrow. Then there are others who say, well, this is just the way things are and always will be. This is just a hopeless mess. What do you think? What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says our brokenness, this world's fallenness, is everyone's fault stretching back all the way to the first man and woman ever created. But the Bible also tells us that this problem isn't just skin deep. It's not just that we literally get older and eventually die. It's not just that we have an earthly, temporary problem. Our greatest problems aren't even talked about on the news. Our greatest problems are spiritual and eternal in that our relationship with God has been severed. You see, on our own, we're dead and blind in our sins. We're in bondage to our sins. And that means each and every one of us is powerless to pull ourselves up out of our sin. The best people that have ever walked this earth haven't been able to change themselves or those around them or this world. None of us can lead to a better, lasting way forward because all of us have fallen into the same death trap. Even if that's the condition of every individual, what about 
us really coming together. We've heard that a lot recently. What if we collectively united around what's right and good? What if this group of people could be a light to the watching world to show the way forward? What if it happened with a nation? What then? Would things be different? I'm baiting you. No. We don't even have to speculate. That's what God did with Israel. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God formed the nation of Israel. Israel was in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. They cried to the Lord. The Lord heard their cries. He sent Moses to lead them out. He declared Israel to be his firstborn son. But after displaying his inexhaustible and matchless power through the ten plagues, after they had been baptized into the Red Sea, after they were led by his presence into the wilderness, they fell into temptation just like Adam. Even under the best and most ideal circumstances, Israel still sinned against the Lord. They followed in Adam's footsteps. Adam was in a garden paradise with the produce of every tree offered to him except one, and he still failed. You see, on the broadest of scales, every person, including you and including me, is powerless to save the world because like Adam and like Israel, we have all sinned. That is, everyone except Jesus. Jesus came as the second Adam, as the true Israel, who triumphed and succeeded where every other person had failed. After his baptism in the Jordan, the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he went without not just one tree, but every form of physical provision for 40 days while he was tempted by Satan. And in response to those temptations, Jesus intentionally quoted from the opening chapters of Deuteronomy. Of all the passages that he could have drawn from, why did Jesus quote so narrowly from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8? Well, in those chapters, Moses was reminding the people of Israel at the end of their 40 years in the wilderness of the sin that got them there in the first place. Jesus is drawing the connection that he has come to take up the mantle that no one before him had been able to carry. He is the true Israel, the beloved Son of God, the righteous one. And so let's briefly use these three temptations to compare the nation of Israel with Jesus as the true Israel. First, if you'll look at your Bibles in verses 3 and 4, Israel prioritized their physical well-being over their spiritual well-being. While Jesus chose to suffer physically for the sake of honoring the Lord. 
The second in verses 5 through 8, Israel worshipped a golden calf and the other idols of the nations around them in the name of expediency, while Jesus refused to shortcut his father's will for his life, even though it led to the cross. Third, in connection to verses 9 through 12, Israel wanted God to prove their status as his chosen people by immediately meeting their needs while Jesus submitted himself to his Father's timing to reveal his identity to the world. And there's an echo in these three temptations to Adam and Eve's temptation. And they saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. But Jesus knew that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life offered to him by Satan weren't in fact good gifts given to him from the Father. Jesus obeyed where Adam and Israel and all of us didn't and haven't. When faced with temptation unlike everyone before him, Jesus triumphed gloriously. And now here's what this triumph teaches us. The sinless Son of Man was also and is also the Holy Son of God. And because of that combination, He would be the Savior. Finally, there was one worthy to come to be our substitute, to lay down His life for sinners because He was without sin. Here was the one born of woman who came to crush Satan's head. Resisting the devil means submitting to the will of the Father. And in Jesus' case, he knew that that meant suffering and death on a cross under the eternal wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus knew that in this moment, even at the start of his public ministry, in submitting to the will of the Father, it would be submitting to his own death. But he also knew that he would be raised from the grave on the third day and would receive all glory, all power, all dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. He rejected Satan's lies with the truth that his father had spoken at his baptism. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. But now don't miss this. Through the line of this second Adam, who is also the true Israel, God is at work to graft in those who have by nature and by choice found sin to be our heritage. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus' finished work, His life, His death, His resurrection, the Holy Spirit is at work even now to make us new creations. Friends, Jesus has done in his righteousness what we were powerless to do in our sin. He has become the way that we are reconciled with God for all eternity. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to just take a moment and reflect back on your life up until this point? What do you see? What are the milestones, the mile markers of your life that stand out? Do you notice your own sin like ink blots on a page? 
Well, friends, if you don't see them, it's not because they're not there. But if you do see them, and you feel any sort of shame or remorse or heaviness over them, let me offer to you hope that comes in the form of a warning. As we've seen today, in contrast to Jesus, each and every one of us is in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. But you won't find it where so many people tell you to look for it. You can't just get back up again and do better. You can't reach a point somewhere down the line where your goodness outweighs your badness. You can't be made right with God. You can't be included into His family as His child on your own. None of us can because all of us are sinners. That's why we need a substitute. We need someone who is blameless, sinless, perfect to stand in our place. And that's what Jesus has done, friends. The Son of God became the Son of Man and lived the righteous life we failed to live and died for the sinful life we have lived. And because God raised him from the dead and right now he is with the Father on high, we can have the confidence that we will be saved when we turn away from our sins and believe in him. And then what he's done on our behalf, on behalf of sinners, will be credited to you personally. And so friend, come to him in all your sin, in all your brokenness, and believe that in His righteousness, He will save you. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be honored to talk to you in just a few moments. But now, church, I'm sure the first application that you're thinking of right here, right now, and that no doubt you've heard from many good sermons, faithful sermons on God's Word from chapter 4, is based on how we should battle temptation. And that we should do so with the Word of God. <laughs> of course, lest you misunderstand me, that's exactly right. We should battle temptation with the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit with which we see Jesus so powerfully wielding here. And we're meant to pick up on the fact that just like in the garden, Satan takes God's word and twists it. In fact, his connection in Psalm 91, there in verses 10 and 11, connecting that to Jesus as his fulfillment is spot on. He just misapplies it based on verse 9. And as with all counterfeits, we need to know the original so well that we're able to sniff out even the most subtle variation to it. I find it interesting that Jesus, the Word made flesh, doesn't at this point offer any new revelation. He simply repeats what had already been written so many hundreds of years before. Maybe you've heard someone reason. Now, people have so many different interpretations of Scripture. What we need is one voice to make sense of it all. Well, people try to find that one voice in different places. Maybe the Pope, maybe some modern-day prophet, and maybe a popular pastor that claims he has fresh insight. 
But notice what Jesus used to correct Satan's abuse of Scripture. What did he use? I mean, look and see. When Satan uses Scripture in verses 10 and 11, what does Jesus use in verse 12? He uses Scripture. Jesus corrects Satan's abuse of Scripture with other Scriptures rightly applied and interpreted. Loved ones, we should have the same response. Yes, people interpret the Bible in all kinds of different ways. And yes, it can be confusing. But the answer isn't found in looking outside the Bible for clarification, but back to the Bible. You see, it's not that God hasn't given us one living, modern-day voice. It's that it's His voice given to us in His Word. And so, yes, this passage does encourage us Encourage us that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the heavenly ministry of Jesus, our high priest, who helps us when we're tempted, we can be, we will be victorious over temptation. We also know so famously that no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. But, I don't think that's Luke's point. All that to say, which I couldn't keep from saying. I tried, but I couldn't. I don't think that's Luke's focus. Because what happens as our lives have borne out time and time again, we look to Jesus We see him overcome temptation. We say, yes, I'm going to go out there and imitate him, and I'm going to overcome temptation. And then what happens? You fall. Again. And again. And again. And again. Until you die. The point of what Luke is doing in this moment, yes, giving us an example of how to fight temptation, but to encourage us as sinners, as those who do fall into temptation, that one has come who has not, who has been victorious, so that even when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who mediates His blood to us by faith in His name, so that we come not based on the merits of overcoming temptation this week, but based on His sufficient work on the cross. That's the power of the cross that we plead and that we cherish and that we come back to time and time and time again. And isn't it so often in connection with our relationship to Christ that we find ourselves being tempted to doubt and despair? You see, Satan's plan of attack that followed the divine announcement that Jesus was the Son of God Did you notice the first word out of Satan's mouth in each of his temptations? It's the word if. Brothers and sisters, we are truly God's children through faith in His Son. But all the same, Satan can tempt us to doubt God's love for us. He can tempt us to demand God to prove it, to make it obvious in our healing, in our comfort, 
in our career path, in our marriages, in our children, in our happiness. In other words, Satan can tempt us to doubt God's care for us as his children by forcing him to prove it visibly, tangibly, right here, right now. But friends, our status in Christ is bigger than our circumstances. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer comes back, nothing. And the truth of that doesn't change the fact that Satan tries to get us to doubt it. So then when we are in those moments of temptation, even coming out of those moments when we have not just been tempted, but fallen into temptation and have sinned, we come back to the truth that Christ has come. He wasn't and isn't expecting us to be perfect. That's why he died. So then we come to him with the same faith when we first believed, trusting like children that he has provided the way for us to be made right with God. And friends, I hope it strikes you how Satan's temptations of Jesus here are the same ones promised by the prosperity gospel. But they're lies. Jesus rejected them because he knew submitting to the will of the Father and abiding in his love was better than life itself. Loved ones, Satan is still at work to call the children of God away from suffering. But when we truly believe the love that He has for us in Christ, then we will choose our Savior instead of our sin. Because Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell, we too will have victory, not by our own merits, not by overcoming temptation on our own, but by faith in His name. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that the realities of what you have sent your son to do would fall on us afresh this morning. The son of God became the son of man so that he could be our savior. Help us not to look to ourselves. Help us not to look to our sinlessness this week because we'll never find it. Help us to look to Christ as our substitute, as our righteousness. We ask it in his name. Amen.